We are in Hebrews chapter 5. We had covered last time verses 1 through 5, which was about uh, the priesthood. Now, there's four prerequisites for priesthood. Number one, a priest has to be human. Couldn't be an angel. So that's what he outlines there in, in verse 1. And a priest has to be appointed. All right? So a priest has to be appointed. It's not something that you can take for yourself. Priest has to be able to offer up gifts and sacrifices on behalf of, on behalf of others. And fourthly, the priest has to be compassionate and sympathetic. Must be compassionate and sympathetic, but without becoming too overcome by the cares of others, by the burdens of others. And this is really important. Sometimes you'll meet people and they're really super compassionate and you can just pour yourself out to them and they take upon themselves a lot of your pain. Now, they can't do that with lots of people. They can only take your pain or maybe one other person. But they, they're the type of people that would quickly become overcome if they were to be in a position, say, like a pastor of a church or something, where one person after another is just coming and dumping problems. And you have to learn how to be able to walk. And, and you want to hurt with people, but there's limited tears. You've only got so many tears you can cry. And, and this same sort of thing happens in life. You know, some people are, are really passionate about different issues in life. Say it's human trafficking or the abortion issue or different things. And it's great to have a passion and to walk in that. But you can't carry them all because you only have so many tears and so much time. And some people are like, why aren't you helping me with this? Well, because I'm carrying this this one. This is the one that I'm passionate about. And so so this, this is some of the things that, that a priest will confront as well. So we're going to pick it up now in, in, uh, in verse, in verse five. It says, says of Hebrews five, verse five. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that's a quote from Psalm chapter two, verse seven. This is saying that God appointed Jesus and also proclaimed him as a son. He appointed Jesus and proclaimed him as a son. And then in verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he made him a priest. He appoints Jesus as a son and he appoints him also as a priest. And he appoints him according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was an Old Testament figure from the book of Genesis. And we're going to pick that up. Later in Hebrews, when, when the author of Hebrews speaks more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. And so we'll talk about it there. But Melchizedek was, was the priest of Salem, which is, uh, uh, the, Salem is peace. And that's uh, uh, believed to be what Jerusalem is now. Jerusalem is city of peace. But he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, whereas the other priests were priests according to the Levitical priesthood, and they had to be of the descendants of Aaron. Jesus was not of the descendants of Aaron. He was from the tribe of Judah, and he was appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So verse 7 now. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being destined, being designated by God as a high priest, as a high priest, 
according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see in this passage that Jesus now fulfills the four requirements that were specified in, in verses 1 through 4 of, uh, uh, to be needed for a priest. In the days of his flesh, meaning that he was a human, uh, he offered up prayers and supplications, meaning that he was able to do these offerings up on behalf of others. He was a son and he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So he himself suffered. So he's able to, to, to suffer on behalf of others. And he's able to, to uh, deal with us with compassion. Now we're going we're gonna to come back in this portion of, of 7 through 10 and look at that in more detail. But I want to jump down to, uh, to verse, verse 11 and start reading from there. Concerning him, now this is concerning Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So it says concerning Melchizedek in verse 11, concerning Melchizedek, uh, he, he says, we, we've got much to say. He says, but it's hard to explain. So again, Melchizedek is this Old Testament figure, and he's going to pick Melchizedek back up in, in chapter 7, and that's where we'll deal with him in detail. But look at what he says of the people here. He says, since you have become dull of hearing. So remember who these Hebrews are that he's speaking with. The Hebrews are people living around Jerusalem who are thinking of denying the Messiah, going back into Judaism, because the persecution was becoming now hot and heavy. They weren't in Jerusalem. There were people who lived in Jerusalem, in the city, in the walled city in Jerusalem. But these were people who lived in Judea, around Jerusalem. And, and uh, he is warning them in the book of Hebrews that you can't do this. You can't deny Jesus and then go back into Judaism, and then return back again into Jesus. Can't happen. That is not something that you can do. It's not, it's not a way that, that, that you can work. And he says, because what's going to happen is, you will die if you do this. And he doesn't mean spiritual death. He means physical death. That means if they go back under Jerusalem, they're going to end up going back. If they go back into, into Judaism, they're going to end up going back into the city of Jerusalem. And that's soon going to be attacked by the Romans. Remember, it's 66 to 68 AD when this book is written. In 70 AD, the onslaught was coming, which Jesus had foretold would come as a judgment upon that city. And that's when everyone who is in that city is going to physically die. That is the death that he's talking about. He says, for by this time, for though by this time in verse 12, you ought to be teachers. He said verse above, above that, since you have become dull of hearing, you have become dull. In other words, you didn't start out dull. Everybody starts as a new believer with a very rudimentary understanding of Jesus. And from that point, we begin to grow. These people had already gone through that point. They had already been saved. They had started to grow. They neglected their growth and they became dull. We become dull when we neglect to grow in Christ. There is no staying level. 
If you don't use it, you lose it. This is exactly what he's talking about. You have become dull of hearing. You didn't start out dull of hearing. You accepted the Lord. Now you have become dull. Remember, we've looked at verse upon verse where he's talking to them. He mentions that they're all brethren, that they have the same heavenly calling. He is not speaking to unbelievers. We've gone through this over and over again. He's speaking to believers. He said, you have become dull. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. So they are long enough in Christ that by this time they ought to be teachers. So they are years in their knowledge of Christ. They ought to be teachers. Not that everyone's called to be a teacher, but everybody needs to be able to teach. And he says, you ought to be teachers by this time. But now you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. For you have come to need milk and not solid food. So in other words, you've come to need it. You were weaned off of this milk, this beginning teaching. Now you've come back into it. If we don't use what we have, we lose it. And this is exactly the parables that Jesus spoke that bothers people. Why would Jesus say that when he said there was a, there was a landowner and he gave to some of his servants, to one servant he gave He gave five talents to another servant. He gave three talents to another servant. He gave one talent. And then he said, you go and you use these things and you deal with them. And then he goes off. He comes back to the one who had gotten five talents. He made five talents more. He invested it. He used it. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Enter the joy of my my father. Enter the joy of the kingdom. To the one with three talents, the same sort of thing. He had gained three talents more. But the one with one talent hid it in the ground and did nothing. And Jesus said to him, he didn't say, oh, well, you know, at least you're giving me back the one. No, he said, he said, you wicked and lazy slave. You ought to be, you, you, you're going to be cast into utter darkness. This is what he said. He called him a wicked and lazy slave for not using what had been entrusted to him. There are things that are given to us that he expects us to use. The same sort of thing here. He said that this was given to you, you started to grow, the persecution came, you stopped growing, and now you want to go back into this, and this is, this is the state that you're in. You've come back to need milk all over again. For everyone who partakes only of milk, in verse 13, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So what happens is you become unaccustomed to the word of righteousness. It's hard to catch on. So the word of God comes and it's hard to pick it up. You go back into the word of God and it's like not making sense anymore. This initial feeling that we had when we first got saved and the word of God was there rich and alive, we begin to slip from this. And he, and he says, he says, but solid food is for the mature because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of practice, these things come. These things become come to us because of practice. So there's, there's an interesting verse here concerning the, this, this whole idea of, uh, of, of practice. And this is, uh, I believe it's in Philippians chapter, chapter 4. Let me see this. Philippians chapter 4. Yes, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. Philippians 4, 9. The things that you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me. This is Paul speaking. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Peace comes through practice. You practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
If we practice the things of God, if we practice taking the word of God and making it a part of our lives, the God of peace is with us. If you want your life to be destroyed, you stop practicing these things and all sorts of things will start coming in your life. You start looking at yourself. Everything becomes about me. When we are not pouring out in the things of God, everything becomes about me. I was so blessed this morning. Shireen, Shireen was concerned because Cicerone had to go back to Mexico and who was going to be helping her leading in the kitchen. And she said that, uh, she, she told me that she went to the kitchen this morning at, at uh, she usually leaves the house at 6 a.m. On, on Sunday mornings to begin to pick things up from, from the store and get over to the kitchen. And, and uh, Miss Flora meets her there and Cicerone uh, meets her there around seven, I think. And she said, and before they start working in the kitchen, they pray. And if you want to learn how to cook for a lot of people, you meet Shireen in the kitchen on Sunday mornings regularly, and you will learn how to cook for a lot of people. It's a very good trait to have. Well, anyway, she said that David prayed and he thanked God for the opportunity to do the cooking. I mean, that blessed me so much when I heard that. Here's a guy not just like, well, you know, well, I'll fill in if Cicerone's away. Here's a guy thanking God for the opportunity to do this type of thing. This is the richness that comes in the Lord. When we learn to give of ourselves, then we get filled. This is exactly what Jesus said when Satan offered him everything, took him up to the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and its glory. And he says, all this I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only in the worship of God and the service of him will we be fulfilled. Worshiping him and serving him. That is the only way to be fulfilled. If it's all about ourselves, we will always lack. If you expect your spouse to fulfill you, you will be sorely disappointed. If you expect your job to fulfill you, you'll be disappointed. It is only in worship and in service. That's what Jesus says. All right, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 5. And so this is what he's speaking about at the end of, of, of Hebrews chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There's a practice that comes that's part of Christian life. He's bringing them right back to the beginning. He says, these things come to you through practice, that's how they come. Now let's turn back to, uh, let's look back at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety or because of his reverence. In the days of his flesh, this means again that Jesus in the days when he was here on earth walking in the flesh, he was a man. In the days, plural, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. So we hear teachings about the importance of prayer all the time. I'll tell you, I, I want to I be honest with you about my own life because, because I've, I've heard lots of messages on prayer and it always, what goes through my mind is, how much do you pray? Here you're telling me I ought to pray. How much do you really pray? Now, if anybody thinks that they pray enough, that the amount that they pray is enough, I would say that you're young and you're naive. All right? And you'll grow into the point where you learn that you probably are not praying enough. If you're older and you think you pray enough, I'd like to meet that person. 
All right? I'd really like to meet them. So when I started out praying, when I, shortly after I first got saved, I would pray for about three minutes a day. Pray for about three minutes. That, that was it. And I was happy with that. This is where I was. I was a brand new believer. I would read the, the Bible for about three minutes a day, and I'd pray for about three minutes a day, and I was, I was happy with that. And I was reading the Bible about three minutes every day and praying. That's when I first got saved. I was doing this. And I was doing it consistently. It has been a constant struggle in my life to learn how to pray, to learn how to pray, to learn how to do this. And I don't think that you can just say, tell people, pray, pray. I, I don't think it works. It just doesn't work. And so all these people that, you really ought to pray more. Well, okay. And then you do it for like one day. And, and uh, try to pray for one hour. If you're not used to it, one hour of prayer will kill you. I mean, it'll wipe you out. I mean, after about three minutes, you run out of things to say. <laughs> and that's why it's good to attend these prayer meetings that can run for about an hour so you can learn how to pray. And this is where I learned how to pray, by being around other believers. And I was always attending one or two prayer meetings a week where each of these prayer meetings was, was at least an hour long. And you learn how to pray. I mean, and your mind wanders off and you bring it back and your mind wanders off and you bring it back. But it says in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications. Prayers are these general things for everyone. And then supplications are, Lord, help me. That, 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 uh, um, that we come with these, these cries to the Lord. He offered them up with loud crying and tears. Look at how personal prayer was to Jesus. It wasn't a very sedate thing. It was very personal. So where I am in my life now, I would say that I probably pray about an hour a day. Maybe an hour and a half. Hour to hour and a half a day. And I'm not saying that boldly. I'm just saying that this is where I am in my life after almost 40 years of walking with God and trying very hard to do this type of thing. But I have to wake up very early to do this and I have to make set aside time during the day to be able to do this type of thing. And it's not easy. My mind is just like yours. It wanders into this area and I'm pulling it back and my spirit's wandering over there and I gotta pull my spirit back. Got my mind here and my spirit here and I, I keep trying to do this. But you learn how to make it personal. Jesus, it says he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. And people will always often refer us to Luke twenty two forty four, when Jesus was in agony in the garden as an example of his praying with loud crying and tears. That was not the first time he had done it, I am sure. Because you can't just break into doing that all of a sudden when trouble comes. And that's why it says, in the days of his flesh. Meaning, this is the way Jesus prayed. This is the way he prayed. He would pray with loud crying and tears. In Mark 1.35, it says he would go off to a lonely place while it was still dark. And he would go there and he would pray. So he had set times of prayer. It says that, that Peter and John would go to the temple at, at, at 3 p.m. at the hour of prayer. They had a set time of prayer. And that's a very good thing to do. Really hard to have a good prayer life if you don't have a set time of prayer. And my set time of prayer is I wake up early in the morning. And, and, you, and uh, what happens is young couples get kids. Oh, you don't know what it's like to have kids. Uh, I've had four. I mean, I, I, I kind of know what it's like. And, and uh, um, 
So what you do is you get up before your kids up. Oh, you get up. You say, you don't know what time my kids are up by 6 a.m. Fine. That's great. You get up before 6. You say my kids wake up at 5.30. Get up before 5.30. Yes, that's what it means. It means you set aside a time to pray. It's discipline. It is discipline. And I can't push this on you. I'm just saying that this is the Christian life. It is a constant struggle. And I'm not trying to push it on you because I don't think that I can make you pray. I can make you pray for like a day, maybe. A little bit. Very short time. But that's it. I can't do it. I'm just saying, look at the way the guy was. But his prayer times were exciting. It wasn't, oh God. I mean, he would loud crying and tears. I mean, there was action here in his prayer. You get a place where you can do loud crying and tears. Now take the image of Jesus. Is this the image of a conquering king? I mean, look at the image that the Bible gives us of the king of the universe, of the one who comes and defeats Satan. The picture of the one who is mighty and strong and defeats all the people that come to him with just a word, heals the sick, raises the dead. Look at the picture of him in his private life. Loud crying and tears. Not a little whimpering. Loud crying and tears. This is where we pour ourselves out to God. And if it bothers people, if it bothers your spouse, let them get used to it. After a while, they get used to it. Loud crying and tears. It was poured out. It was poured out to, to, uh, uh, to the Father. If you look in, look in, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. And we're going to start reading from verse 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Reading from verse 14. This is Paul speaking. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit. I will sing with the mind also. This is Paul speaking. Now, if you're a Baptist, fine. You don't have to speak in tongues. If you speak in tongues, fine. I'm okay with that too. You do whatever you're comfortable with. When you want to explain away tongues, explain away everything else in the scriptures if you want to also. All right? Don't just explain away that. Explain away everything else. But Paul said, if I pray in a tongue. What do you mean pray in a tongue? Well, Paul was praying in a tongue. And this is this, in this whole thing about tongues and interpretations and everything else. He says, I, when I, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. If you pray in a tongue, bring that into it. If you don't want to pray in tongues, don't bring it into it. But learn how to pray. You spend time with God and pour out yourself. This is the example of what Jesus was pouring out to us. This is the example of scripture. Look in Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is what the Spirit does. You begin to pray. And then after a while, you just run out of words. 
And all you can do is just groan before God. The Spirit is now interceding on your behalf to God. This is the excitement. I'll tell you, I go into my prayer time sometimes and I just, I'm tired, I'm weary and so many things and I come out really like a roaring lion. Nobody's going to stand in my path. Nobody. I mean, I just, I feel like heaven and earth are on my side. If you learn to pray, when you teach your little Bible study at, at, at the university or wherever it is, you will go in there with huge amounts of confidence if you learn how to pray. I'm just telling you the joy that's in my life. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. I don't know how to make people pray. I'm just telling you over almost 40 years now, I've tried to discipline myself to pray. I started with three minutes. And where I am now, it's insufficient. There's so many other things that I'd like to pray for. I get done and finally I just got to get going in my day. There's so many other things that I'd like to do. I don't think I've prayed through. I pray to the Lord. I say, Lord, give me creativity in my work. This is what distinguishes people in my field, Lord. Lord, if I were, if I were a farmer, I would pray that you would bless my crops and bring rain. But Lord, I'm not a farmer. I'm a chemist. What do I need? I need creativity in my lab and not just for me, for my students too. So Lord, grant me that, I pray. Grant me that. Lord, I pray it just be a special creativity like nobody else has. You know, and this is what I pour out to the Lord. I cry out to the Lord for this. I say, Lord, today is my group meeting. Lord, give me extra special wisdom to encourage these students and just give me a word, something that's going to bring us into a new area. Lord, give me this, I pray. And I'm appealing to God. And you read the prayers of great men of God. There was this this one evangelist and his wife was, was saying that, that he would wake up in the middle of the night and he would always go off and pray and she, she was always worried that he was going to get get uh, catch a cold at night and, and uh, she'd bring him up a blanket to put over him. And she, she'd say the way he was pouring himself out to God, he was an evangelist. And you know what he was crying out? She said, Lord, will you not give me Scotland? <clears throat> Will you not give me Scotland? I was so moved by that. Here I am praying, Lord, will you not give me the hearts of the people in this class? This man is praying for Scotland. This is the level of faith he had. I read the stories of another man. It used to drive him crazy if he didn't wake up before the, the blacksmiths, before he heard the blacksmiths' hammers hammering away. He would say, Lord, why can't I even... Offer my time to you before these men are are, are hammering away at, at their vocation. And you read these stories of the men of God who would wake up in the middle of the night to pray, to just pray. And and it, it it's Lord, let me be like that. Lord, let me be like that. And that's the picture. That's the picture we see in Jesus as he's pouring himself out in prayer. Turn, turn to Luke chapter twenty-two. Luke chapter twenty-two. And we're going to read from verse 44. Let's start reading from verse 41. Luke 22, reading from verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray. You want to know what position Jesus prayed in? There it is. He knelt. That's all you see. I'm not saying you have to kneel. If, have to kneel. If the scriptures wanted us command, wanted us to kneel, it would have told us you have to kneel. But if you want to follow the pattern, that was the pattern that Jesus had. He knelt down to pray. 
saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, let me just mention on this verse, he is not asking to the Lord, the Lord to deliver him from the cross. Many scholars have studied this. He would never do that. It was prophesied that he had to die. It was prophesied that he had to die by hanging on a cross, by hanging on a tree. It was prophesied. And it was prophesied that he was going to raise from the dead physically. It was prophesied that he would die physically, that he was raised from the dead physically. He's not praying to go against the prophecy of Scripture. What he's praying is that he's not going to die a spiritual death. Because there was no prerequisite in anywhere in the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah had to die a spiritual death. But Jesus died a spiritual death for three hours on the cross. That's when he said, he said, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? That's what he was praying against. But the Lord answered him by resurrecting him spiritually. And that's when he said, it is finished. How could he say it is finished? He hadn't even yet died, let alone resurrected from the dead. He's not talking about his physical death. He was talking about his spiritual death. He finished paying that three hours on the cross, that spiritual death, separation from God. And then it was finished and he proclaimed it is finished. That's what he's praying about. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So here is an angel. So all of a sudden there's angels working in the midst of his prayer time. And this is what happens. The scriptures tell us that we each have an angel. He speaks about it, even children have angels. And then the angel begins to minister to us in our prayer time. So we're going back and forth with God. One second we're praising God. One second we're interceding to God. We're we're supplicating. We're making supplications to God. And the next second an angel is strengthening us. This is what happens in prayer. And I have personal testimony that this happens to me in prayer all the time. People say, you know, you should start out first by repenting and then do this and Mine is just all jumbled up. You know, I remember something. I say, Lord, forgive me for that. You know, and then all of a sudden I'm asking for something and all of a sudden I'm thanking him and just back and forth. And then he's strengthening me. This is what you see. Here's the picture of Jesus. Here he's going and he's, he's praying for something. An angel comes and strengthening him. And now it says, and being in agony. Remember, Luke is written chronologically. So boom, boom, boom. This is the chronological order that this happened because Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that this has been written in successive chronological order, he tells us. So an angel comes, appears to him, strengthening him and being in agony. He was praying very fervently. So even after the angel appeared, he's in agony, still in agony and praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down from down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. Okay, so at least they had a good excuse. It was sleeping from sorrow. Um, We just felt so bad. We figured we'd just go to sleep. (laughs) I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Have you just been so depressed? You just go to sleep. I mean, it's kind of a common thing. That's what they were doing. So he was was just, just praying like this. This is the excitement of the prayer time the man had. It wasn't a solemn thing. I mean, it was just interactive. It was just interactive prayer. I mean, it was, it was going back and forth, angels coming in and out and praying to God. And this is what it says in Hebrews, in the days of his flesh, this is what he was doing. Okay, turn back to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And so, so in the days of his flesh, this is how he was praying. And it says, and he was heard because of his piety, because of his reverence. You want to get separated from God, you sin. Now, 
This is not to say that, that we, we don't all sin. We all commit sins, but you can repent of these things. But you fall into gross sin. You say, well, <clears throat> all sins are the same. I don't know who taught you that, but it's not true. In the Old Testament, there were different penalties for different sins. And Jesus spoke about this many times. <clears throat> Jesus, Jesus said that uh, in, in John chapter 19, verse 11, he said, these people have the greater sin because they delivered you to me. He said, Pilate, the sin that you have is not as much as their sin. Their sin is greater. He spoke of levels of sin. Let me give you another example. A thought, a lustful thought goes through a man's mind. He confesses to his wife, I, you know, I, I had this lustful thought. Please forgive me. A man goes and commits adultery with the neighbor, with the neighbor's wife, and comes and tells his wife. Let me tell you something. There's going to be two different outcomes for those two sins. They're both sins. They're only equal in that either one of them can keep us out of heaven. Either one of them is sufficient to keep us out of heaven. Any little sin is a, we need the blood of Jesus. But they are totally unequal in the ramifications in life. You start moving in the areas of gross sins and you will see it becomes very, very hard to pray. Very hard. You want to be separated from God? Go ahead and sin. You'll, you'll, you'll experience real separation. Not that you lose your salvation, but you'll experience real separation. Very difficult to pray. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Obedience has consequences. Obedience has consequences. Look in, in, in Philippians, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 8. Philippians 2, 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Obedience has consequences. If you want to walk with Jesus, it has consequences. A friend of mine is a professor at another university. He's a young guy, and he's doing all these Veritas forms now, and he just wrote this long article on the resurrection. It was beautiful. And he sent it to me late last night. When I woke up early this morning, I saw that what he had sent me. He had sent me a link to this, and it's, it, it's up on a website, a, a Veritas Forum website. Beautiful, beautiful uh, 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 description of, of, as a scientist, why he believes in the resurrection. And I wrote back to him. I said, this is wonderful. So glad to see you doing this. Remember, obedience has consequences. Things happen to us when we walk with Christ. Things happen to us. Obedience has consequences. And this is what Jesus is seeing. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned that obedience has consequences. Things happen to him as a result of this. And this is what will happen to you. A friend of mine, a very good, uh, somebody who actually was a former student of mine is working in the administration at Rice. And he comes back and he, he tells me about all these things that I don't get because of my stance in the university on certain topics. And I just have to smile and just say, you know, and, and, and I see all these people getting the, this and that. He says, Jim, they just, they just think you're crazy. You know, your stance on, on your faith, your stance on different issues like this. And, uh, and, but, you know, obedience has consequences. If you want to walk with God, it will affect your career. Get used to it. Welcome to the life of the Messiah. This is what happens. Obedience has its consequences. But the closeness of God is worth far more. He never promises us to deliver us from these, this suffering and these consequences. But what he does, he delivers us from the despair of them. 
I would much rather be walking with Jesus and have what I have than to have what they have and not walk with him. Obedience is going to have consequences in your career. So when you take a stand and things happen to you and you don't get the promotion and you, 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 you don't get the added bonus because of the consequences of walking with Jesus, remember what I'm telling you today. Obedience has consequences. And let's finish up in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, let's finish off this last portion. It says, and having been made, in verse 9, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. To all those who obey him, he became the source of eternal salvation. Not that salvation is earned by works. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the obedience of faith. And you see this sort of thing. If you look, for example, in John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 29, you see this sort of thing. Jesus even spoke about this. John six twenty nine says, Jesus said, in, let's start reading in verse 28, John six twenty eight. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of faith, that you believe in him that he, whom he has sent. Obedient, the obedience of faith, obedience of faith, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is what he's talking about. And I've listed here several other verses where, where it says obedience, the gospel. This is just three verses. Uh, uh, so uh, Acts 6-7. They were obedient. They became obedient to the faith. This is what he's talking about. And then in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 1-8, it says obey the gospel. This is the message that he's talking about. These things come by obedience. Obedience. He becomes the one that brings us into a salvation by obedience to the gospel message. It's the obedience of faith, what Jesus is talking about. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is what He's proclaiming to us. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of Your Word. You are so good. I pray, Lord, for these young people, that You so work in their lives. Father, that You would bring them slowly and gradually into a joy of prayer that they would really enjoy and they would be able to have these exciting times with, with, with outpouring, with just tears and loud cries in prayer. Father, I pray that you would do this in their lives and that then you would minister to them through angels. Father, I pray that they would learn to pour themselves out in prayer to you to take their struggles, to take their pains, to take their fears, and just dump it out before the Lord. And Lord, that you would so fill them. Father, do this in their lives, I pray. Do this in their lives. And Father, I pray that you'd make them obedient in faith, obedient to faith in the gospel, that they would do the works of God, which is to believe on him whom, they have, whom you have sent. Father, for those here who don't know you, Lord, I pray this day that they would invite Jesus into their hearts and say, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. Lord, I commit these young people to you. Have mercy on them. Have mercy on their souls. In the name of Jesus. Amen.